may be seated. I'm not sure if it's a new series or whether it's a repeat, but on PBS lately there's been a series that has been dealing with the Civil War and dealing with it in a unique fashion because normally we think of the Eastern battles that took place up and down the Atlantic coast and the different battles, Gettysburg and all the rest. But there was a whole other section of the Civil War that took place in what was called the Western Theater in places like uh, Alabama and Mississippi and places like that. And they were going through the different battles as they were taking place. But one of the things that, that I was thinking about as I was preparing the message is how important at times high ground was. That if you were in the high ground, if you had the, the place of highest elevation, that that gave you a perspective to look out upon the battlefield, on the things that were taking place, and to know what was going on at many different levels. You knew what your own troops were doing and where they were struggling and where they were in the midst of the battle and where they were moving forward or possibly falling back. And that gave you an incredible advantage. You knew what the enemy was doing. You knew where they were throwing their troops into the battle, where they were bringing up their reserves and where all of that was taking place. And so you could respond to what was going on. And if you have the high ground, if you have that place of perspective, there is an incredible advantage in the midst of the battle. As I was driving to the church and thinking about that, as I'm coming up 309, or actually, I guess it's down 309, and come up over the hill there and start heading towards the church, and you come into the valley that we're a part of, and you look out, and there's one particular landmark you can see for miles. It's the water tower. I remember when I first moved up, and I had no idea where I was going. There were literally many times that I would look, and I would see the water tower. And I would think, I don't know how else to get there, but I go that way. And I would just head towards the water tower. And in my kind of crazy thinking, I was thinking, what would it be like to stand on the top of that water tower? I will probably never get that opportunity. But the panoramic vista that would come out before you would be astounding. You could see all the way up and down the valley. You could see from, I don't know how far south to how far north, but it must be an amazing view up there. I also had that crazy thought, well, what if I were a military leader? I'd put my spotters on top of that, and I'd be able to see everything that was going on around me and know what was taking place. That high ground. That perspective, the controls, all that is taking place, that allows me to see all that is taking place. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4. And as we come to the end of this study and we're working our way through what Paul has been saying there, there is a point of high ground that Paul presents to us. 
a point of perspective that gives to us the ability to see what's going on around us and to respond in some very unique ways. In a sense, as Paul is building particularly this paragraph, but somewhat the the, the book itself, there's a place where Paul comes to with one little phrase in the midst of all of this writing, in the midst of this pragmatic section of the book of Philippians, the, the praxis, the, the, the part that we practice in our lives as he's dealt with the theology. And now he comes to say, okay, this is the implications of that theology. This is the implication of having the mind of Christ. This is the implication of being those that are in a relationship with Christ. This is the implication of living a life that is not self-centered, but is other-centered. Living a life that is not self-promoting, but promoting of the purposes and, and glory of God. Now, what does that mean as we live it out? And so Paul is developing that as he began in chapter 4 and verse 1. And he begins to deal with how then should we live? And the first thing he deals with is a conflict going on between two leading women within the church. But right after that, he begins a very short little paragraph in which the construction of the paragraph within the the way that he uses the grammar gives us a high point, a place of perspective that lets us see what's going on and lets us respond in proper ways. It's these four words. The Lord is near. That little phrase dominates the view of this whole pragmatic section for Paul. Now, as we begin to look at it, the theme that Paul wants us to understand is this, that we are emboldened to godly living by the nearness of our Lord. If you're in battle, you're emboldened by that in that battle, by that high perspective that lets you see all that is going on and gives to you an awareness that you would not otherwise have. And that perspective in this passage is that little phrase. The Lord is near. It should change how we live. It it should change how we relate to those relationships that God brings into our lives. It should change the ways that we work. It should change the way that we drive. It should change the way that I cut my grass. It should change every aspect of my life when I am aware that the Lord is near and the implications of that little phrase in everything that we do. Now Paul puts it right in the middle of this little paragraph that begins in chapter 4 and verse 4 and goes down to chapter 4 and verse 9. But in the middle of that, he puts in this little phrase, our Lord is near, the Lord is near. And the way that he does that is so very, very unique. There's sort of a grammatical construction that takes place. The the phrase plays a unique role in the midst of this unique paragraph. 
as Paul is talking about how we ought to be living, and he calls us to be rejoicing, and he calls us to live gently, and he calls us not to be anxious, and he calls on us to think about such things, and he calls on us to put these things into practice, right in the middle of that is this one phrase clearly declaring the Lord is near. And the way that he does that is this. First of all, all of the phrases in this little section stand by themselves. There's no grammatical construction. It's like bang, 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 bang. Just one right after another. It just comes very, very quickly. And it's to grab our attention. It's to, to take a look at this. It's, it's like when you list things, bang, 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 and just one right after another. And it's meant as it's being read to call our attention. There's no connections. There's no ands. There's no buts in, in each of these declarations, in each of these sentences. Paul uses that rapid fire kind of way to, to say, here's something important. I want you to just kind of pay attention as I quick one run through these little phrases. Many of you know that Brennan likes guns. And so as they're living with us in our basement, we have a number of guns. But there's one that I really enjoy shooting. And it's this little carbine that he has. And sometimes we'll go out to the range, and it's a semi-automatic. And what is so fun about it is you take this gun and you go, bang, 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 and just one right after another, bang, 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 and you go all the way through the clip. And it's just thrilling. It's just exciting. And some of you are going, I don't get it. But that's all right. You didn't play Army as a kid. I did. That's what Paul does here. If you want, this is a semi-automatic grammatical construction with one Application bullet, if you like, after another. Rejoice. Be gentle. Don't be anxious. Think on these things. Boom. Boom. But also, he does something else. All of the phrases are imperatives. Do this. Do this. Do this. Except one. One is a declaration. And in the middle of that rapid fire phrasing, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. He throws in a declaration. And that declaration is, the Lord is near. It's the high point. It's the peak. It's what governs What has gone before, as Paul says there, rejoice and and, and be gentle. And it controls what follows. Don't be anxious. Think on these things. Live out the implications. And right in the middle is this apex. The Lord is near. It governs all. It is one of the central truths of our lives as believers. If you're one that's seeking to understand Christianity and seeking to understand the message, one of the primary parts of the message of the gospel, 
the gospel that Paul has been talking about over and over again, all the way through Philippians, as he talks about working together in the gospel and proclaiming together the gospel and living out together the gospel. The gospel meaning the whole message. And one of, that part of, one of the parts of that whole message is God is with us. God is near. God is always there. God never forsakes us. Paul proclaims this truth. It's the governing concept of this pragmatic section. How do you live the Christian life? One of the main principles, truths, is I live it with the knowledge before me that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. But there's a problem. And the problem is the word near. It can be used in a couple of different ways. Sometimes that little word is used in a spatial way. This table is near me. That's space. That's close by. But we can also use the word near in the sense of time. Depending upon how long Keith preaches, lunch is near. And there is debate in the commentaries over what is Paul saying? Does he mean near like the table or near like lunch? Is it spatial? Is it time? And the answer is yes. I think Paul deliberately uses a word that is allows both directions to just simply declare it, know something. The Lord is near spatially, and the Lord is near temporally. One of the ways to understand this phrase is that God is near in that spatial sense. His presence is always there. Several years ago, we did a series of messages that dealt with God's call to his servants. And one of the primary themes that goes all the way through, every time God calls someone to work for him, you will find there somewhere the phrase, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. There's a couple that are my favorite. One is Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11. Is Moses has been proclaiming to God, God, we've been praying 400 years for you to deliver the people. Why don't you come and deliver your people? Why don't you fulfill the covenant, the promises that you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? God, what is going on? God, why don't you deliver? And God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I got great news. I'm going to deliver my people. And Moses goes, Yay! And then Moses is sort of asking, I'm sure, in his thinking, so how are you going to do it, uh, God? How are you going to deliver them? Through you, Moses. And if I could translate it in the Hebrew, the next words would be, say what? Huh? And Moses is in the midst of a struggle. And he says to God, God, in a sense, you don't know who I, remember who I am, God? I'm the murderer. I tried this before. 
It failed. I've been out in this desert for 40 years because of the failure that I experienced. Because when I tried it on my own, everything fell apart. God, you cannot use me. Nowhere in Genesis does it say God went, ah, I forgot about that. Do you know what God says to Moses? As Moses cries out and says, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And actually, I missed the wrong verse. I put it up there where God says, Moses, it's not who you are. It's I am with you. I am with you. The struggle in your life with the things you've done, with the guilt from what's been a part of your life, have you made the wrong choices at times in your life? All of us have. God comes to us and says, Beloved, it's not who you were. It's who I am. It's the fact that I am in your life. And I can work through those errors, and I can work through the right times to accomplish my purpose. I am with you. The second one is Joshua. This one, I got the right verse. Where Joshua and Moses is now stepping away and Joshua is about to take over the leadership of the people. And in the midst of the struggle of a task which is great before him, a task which he is uncertain of, a task where he's not sure how God will accomplish what it is that is taking place. You ever been there? I was thinking about, again, this week, and I'm not sure why, but I was thinking about when Nicole, my daughter, was born. Cindy says it's the only time in my life that she saw me speechless. I think that's quite true. But I remember standing there and thinking, oh, my goodness. What am I going to do now? This child before me. To be a parent. Good heavens, I could hardly take care of my own life. And now there's a child in my life? You ever felt overwhelmed? Like this. Of course you have. God says to Joshua, Joshua, it's not who you are. It's that I am with you. As you follow my leadership, as you follow my commands, as you do as I instruct you to do, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Get involved. Step in. Because God God will accomplish his purposes through your life. I think my favorite is Gideon. This word, this phrase meant so much to me. I can remember as that young parent, as a seminary student, as um, pastoring the, the first church, any church that I pastored, as all the things in my life, there were, there were times that I just felt so inadequate. 
God comes to Gideon, and Gideon is down in the wine press, in the lowest part of the valley, sifting wheat, throwing it in the air to try to get the the chaff to blow off. And normally you do that on the mountaintop where there's some breezes. He's down in the valley doing it. I wonder if he was going... God comes to Gideon and says this. The Lord is with you. Oh, mighty warrior. Do you know Gideon's response? He says to God, I'm of the tribe of Manassas. I'm the least of the children of the tribe of Manassas. He basically says to God, I'm the biggest loser on earth. I'm of the weakest nation, of the weakest tribe, of the weakest family, and I'm the weakest son. And God says, no, Gideon, I'm with you. You are a gallant warrior. It's not because of who you are. It's because I'm with you, and I will use you. You can read through the others that are called by God and you will find that sense of my presence is with you. As he called the 11 to be his disciples and to become the apostles, he says, I am with you always to the very end of history, to the end of the age. See, God declares to all of his people, I'm near. I'm right there. One of the passages that I use whenever I do a funeral is Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, in the depths, you are there. If I rise up with the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, what? You're right there with me. What are you going through? What are you facing? God's there. He's there with his love. He's there with his presence. He's there with his assurance. He's there with his adequacy and his direction and his guidance and his commands. I'm with you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Man, is that a verse for our time? Why? How? How do you live that out in your life? Because God has said, I will never leave you, nor never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? God says, I'm with you. I'm there. What's the struggle? You know, the problem is that nearness is an act of faith. Sometimes we feel that nearness. I think it's part of the the noumena, the part of experiencing uh, the emotions of worship and the presence of God that is there in our lives. And sometimes it's an actual experience. We sense it. 
When worship is unique in the midst of of our times together and God gives us that blessing where he chooses to pour out his presence and you just feel him there, that's incredible. When you're in the midst of God's word or you're praying and, and suddenly you feel his presence, that's a wonderful gift that God gives to us. It's a taste. I think I've shared before, to me, one of the most amazing times was I was standing at a promise keepers with 80,000 men. And they started singing, holy, holy, holy. And it went a cappella. I was just overwhelmed. The, The tears started coming. But can we be honest? That experience is rare. Part of the problem in worship is we demand it. God never says that experience will always be there. But he proclaims his presence is always there. 95% of the time in my life, maybe more, it is not an act of experience, it's an act of faith. Of believing in my mind that the Lord is near and living that out. And again, can we be honest? In the midst of our, the mundaneness of life, it is so hard to keep that in perspective. Beloved, where this morning did you take the time to think God's near? God's love is surrounding me. God's presence is here. God is with me. God is guiding me. God is loving me. God is accepting me. God is forgiving me. All in the present tense. It is now that God is there. I lose sight of God's nearness in in the activity and the busyness of my life. And I need to take those times to stop. Why have a time alone with the Lord, you know, in the morning, in the afternoon, whenever you choose to do it? Why? Because God's going to go, oh, you're such a great guy. If that's your reasoning, don't do it. It's to understand God is near. To put, to put my mind in a perspective that says, no matter what happens today, God is near. It's his sufficiency, his love. You know, if Cindy and I are arguing on the way to church, we never do that because we're perfect people. But, you know, in that moment, if you believe that, In that moment, to say, Lord, you are near. And though I might not feel very loved at the moment, you love me. You accept me. You are here with me. And the love that you pour into my life, even in the midst of this struggle, I can pour out into Cindy's life. I wish I could say it always happens. It doesn't. As I'm interacting with my children, mine are grown. I have grandkids now. Brennan and Sarah are staying with us, and we have a one, you know, 13-month-old in the house now, almost 14 months, and her way of handling things when she doesn't understand is to go like this. Ah! 
I was done with that 24 years ago. <clears throat> and I was thinking as I was watching Sarah and Brennan, in that moment, to be able to say, Lord, you've made me, you've placed me here, and let me use your adequacy. Give me wisdom to know how to respond to this. God, you are near. Give me the patience that I need through the presence of your spirit in my life. God, you are near. God, thank you for your spirit who indwells me. God, you are near. In those moments, to be aware of the nearness of God. To stop. When you're frustrated at work, and your boss has just laid on to you that new project that is overwhelming. And to say, God, you are near and your presence and your spirit is there to allow me to respond in a righteous way. When you feel guilty, when you feel lonely, when you feel abandoned, God is near. When the circumstances don't make sense, God is near. God is near. And usually, it's an act of this, not this. Paul says God is near. But also, the word is not only used spatially. It is used in a temporal sense. His coming is near. One of the ways that I am aware of that is as I get older and I watch people who are 10, 15, 20 years older than I am and they're passing away. And I'm thinking, you know what, Lord? That's one way that your coming is near in my own life. The coming of the Lord is near in the sense that his return could happen tomorrow. And whether you are premillennial, whether you are amillennial, whether you are pre-tribulational, whatever it may be that you are in your understanding, we understand that God's coming is soon. I'm not putting a date on it. But whether it's for me individually or for his people corporately, God's coming is near. And to be reminded of that. To be reminded that there's a day coming when I can take my life and bring it before the Lord and say, Lord, this is how I used it for you. And having the opportunity to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not meant to terrify us. It's meant to encourage us. Paul says that a number, or the writer of Hebrews says it this way. Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. God is near. God is near. The book of Revelation, as you come to the end, and I just kind of took the phrases, there's more words in between them, but John is watching all that's taking place in heaven, and he says, as he hears God's word, and Jesus declaring, behold, 
I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. Then in verse 12, he proclaims again, Behold, I'm coming. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And then finally, he who testifies to these things, it's the Lord, says, Yes, I am coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. We need to be reminded over and over again, this world is not the end. We are members of another commonwealth. We are members of another kingdom. There is a day coming that we live for that is eternity. It doesn't mean we are not a part of this world. And as as Dave preached a few weeks ago, we are to, to, to pray for the cities and to live out as good citizens where God has placed us. But ultimately live as members of another commonwealth. God is near. God is close. God's presence and God's coming are before us constantly. I challenge each of us, what do you do during your day to remind you of that reality? What do you do morning, afternoon, evening? It's up to you. What are you doing to remind you? Paul's going to talk, and we're going to look at this next week, where he says that there's a peace that comes through prayer. Prayer is a part of practicing the nearness of the Lord, as I'm reminded that God is involved in these circumstances, that God is working out his purposes, that God is present with me, that God is surrounding me with his love, no matter what the circumstance and situation may be, as an act of my mind. I work it out in my practice of prayer. And Paul says, as a result of that, there comes the New Testament word is peace. The Old Testament word was shalom. Everything's okay. Prayer is a part of that. Scripture is a part of that. As I read God's word with with the idea of this is the, the letter to me of the one who is right by me. And I read it with that in mind. Worship is a part of it. As we're reminded reminded at the communion table, this is my love. That is experienced on a daily basis. God is near. Not just in the elements. God is near with his presence in our lives for all who are believers. God is near. Now, next week, we'll look at the, three, the four things that come as a result of that. And I just want to run over them very, very quickly. The first thing Paul says, because he is near, we have joy in all circumstances. Not happiness in all circumstances. Not celebration in all circumstances. But joy. A word that comes up over and over and over again in the book of Philippians. 
Paul's experience in Philippians started with understanding there is joy in all circumstance as he and Silas are in prison, having just been beaten, of being wondering what's coming the next day. And do you know what they were doing? Acts 16. They were singing. That'll blow your mind. As Paul writes them from house arrest in Rome, I know joy. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, joy is the ability in all situations to know that God is present and at work. And therefore, I can respond with trusting peace, gladness, and praise. I may not be happy that I'm in prison, but I am joyous that God is working out his purpose. And God is with me. And I'm learning to depend more upon him. And I'm learning his promises working out in my life. And I'm learning learning what it means to be a part of his commonwealth. Because we know that the Lord is near, we can respond to all with gentleness. Come next week. That is an amazing word, that word gentleness. As I was trying to think what, it, what the word meant, how to show it, the movie It's a Wonderful Life came to mind. And the scene where the bank is collapsing and there's a run on the bank and um, what's his name, Bailey? Um, I can't think of his first name. Anyway, George Bailey starts responding to that and it's exactly that word. To be gentle. To be magnanimous and giving. Even when you have the right to do differently. And then next week we look at because he is near. We can rest through the provision of prayer. That we can pray. And know God's shalom. And then the final one which we'll see. We can think right because we know God is near. Beloved, the whole focus of living out the Christian experience, life, is to know that God is near. To work in our lives with the effort that is necessary to keep that as a part of our focus. To know there will be times when we experience it in a very tangible way. But to understand that normally we experience it is an act of faith and thought and knowledge. To know God is near begins with that moment of salvation, that moment when I accept God's presence in my life because Christ has paid the cost of that to be able to take place. He paid for my sins, my my violence against God, my disobedience to God on the cross. And when I accept that, God's presence indwells me. Jesus said to his disciples, the Holy Spirit has been with you but he will be in you 
I don't think that's ontological. I don't think there's this little box in my someplace there that, you know, it's kind of like a house that the Holy Spirit lives in. But it's the sense that you can get no closer than to be within. God's presence is with us. And God calls us to live out that presence 24-7 in everything that we do. And in doing so, we will know the joy, the peace, the gentleness, the right thinking, the way to live that God has called us to, to do and the experience that God has called us to enjoy. Father, thank you for the promise of your presence, your nearness, and everything that we do. May we live out that implication. May it become a part of our day-by-day thinking. thinking, Father, if there are those that have never trusted you or are still seeking and searching, might they come and speak to someone here to know how they can have that relationship and know it for certain how they can address concerns and doubts they might have. Father, for those of us who know of that relationship, have confidence in it, teach us what it means to live out your nearness in all that we do for your glory, for your honor, for your kingdom. Amen.